Douglas is right. Um, Jesus is the king. He's not only the king, but he's the, the, the king of kings and the, and the Lord of lords, um, which means he's the ultimate reality. Um, and you can rely on him, just like, like Douglas said. Um, you can rely on him like you can't rely on any, anybody else, anything um, else. But there, there's a problem with, with what uh, we, we just saw. The, the, the problem is that at some point in your life you need... Um, some, some proof, some, maybe some additional evidence, maybe some additional testimonies than from a puppet, right? <laughs> Just honest. Um, at some, some point in your life, simply being told something, as Douglas did a good job of, just, just isn't enough. Um, a lot of us, once we reach adulthood, we, we need a few more reasons, a little bit more evidence to, to place our entire lives and to surrender everything to this Jesus guy. Right? And, and that's just, just, we're just kind of being honest here. Um, just being told usually works when you're a child, right? Because mom and dad are, are, are trustworthy, usually. Um, but as an adult, we just sometimes need a little bit, little bit more information to make that, that right decision. Now, to be fair, Douglas listed some really, 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 really good reasons to trust Jesus. Um, he's God, right? He's the boss. Um, he knows you, loves you, and he died for you. Um, he knows what's best for you. Uh, we experience the best life possible with him. Um, and all other people and things will let us down. Um, but if we're perfectly honest to a child, this list could be mom and dad, right? They're, mom and dad are almost godlike. And, and, and then at a certain point in your life, this list could refer to a really, really best friend until number five smacks you in the face. And that best friend or whatever it was that you were trusting in lets you down. Um, so at that point, you do. You, do, you need a little bit more information, a little more, some proofs, maybe some, again, additional evidence, um, testimonies, um, in order to worship him like he deserves to be worshiped and, and, and honor him like he deserves to be honored. Um, and to place your hope in him above all other hopes. Now, again, some will argue, well, hey, pastor, come on. All you need is faith. Just, just believe. Um, I would counter that there are actually two kinds of faith. Maybe you've heard of this. Um, there's childish faith, uh, believing and trusting in untrustworthy things or people. And then there's the faith of the child, um, which is really what the Bible talks about. Um, believing in and trusting in, in trustworthy things or people. Um, maybe you've had religious folks come to your door um, asking for you to, to, to believe in, in something or someone other than the God of the Bible. Um, just believe what our prophet says and um, don't ask questions, just, just have faith. Um, and, and again, many of these really, really, really well-intentioned, loving, wonderful people, all right? I, I don't mean to bag on them or anything like that, um, but they do follow what's called extra-biblical faiths. Um, Kind of the idea of when um, you, you got to have their books um, and you got to listen to their, their prophets to, to really understand the Bible. And, and the fact of the matter is, and, and again, they, I, they would not argue with anything I'm saying here, okay? Um, they, they truly believe that in order to understand the Bible, you need their information and their additions and their changes to understand God and to experience um, God. And so, and again, I'm not here talking about them, um, a childish faith. I, I have loved, people have said this before, a childish faith is someone telling you that if you swallow a lot of rocks, you won't get cancer, right? 
kids, you ever hear kids have a conversation? They got some pretty crazy logic and reasoning. <laughs> they just, they do. Um, but the child, the faith of a child is, is when you listen to your doctor because he's trustworthy, right? It's a little bit of difference here. Um, and again, some will argue not, 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 not about the just believe and the faith, but the idea of proving and, and you need more information and, and folks will push back against that idea. But, but I want you to listen to the Apostle John. This is in John, the very end of his, his, his book, uh, his gospel, chapter 20, verse 30. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. John is literally saying, I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you additional testimonies. I'm going to give you evidence. I'm going to give you reasons to believe that the Messiah is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. I don't think any other passage in the Gospels um, sum it up better, um, the aim of the writers. In, in all four Gospels, right, um, here's why you can put your hope in Jesus, right? Here's why you should worship Him and honor Him with all of your life, right? Here's proof, right, proof that Jesus is who He said He is. And so in our new message series, like the Apostle Paul writes, or the Apostle John, excuse me, writes in his gospel, um, we invite you to come and see for yourself. Um, in John chapter 1, uh, one day Andrew, who, who's Simon Peter's brother, heard John the Baptist talking about the, the Lamb of God, one, one of the titles that, that we give to um, Jesus. And he started asking Jesus questions. And Jesus replied, come and see. Come and find out if I am who I truly say I am. Watch what I do. Watch what I don't do in certain circumstances. And Philip started following Jesus, and he went immediately to his brother Nathaniel. John chapter 1, verse 45, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph, verse 46, Nazareth, this is Nathaniel, can anything good come from there? It was like the, a backwater, um, the sticks, you know, that kind of idea. Come and see, said Philip. So, so as we dig into the first chapter of John, I'll, I'll, I'll look at a couple other passages. Um, we're going to find one proof or one sign after another that Jesus really is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and he is totally worthy, trustworthy of honoring and worshiping um, him. And, and we see that Jesus is incredibly so trustworthy and faithful. Um, you'll never be disappointed. The scriptures usually say you'll never be ashamed of this decision. Like sometimes you make a bad decision, you're like, oh, I'm so embarrassed I trusted that person. That will never happen when you place your trust in Jesus Christ. So we, we can place our hope in him, just like Douglas said very accurately. So what is it about the John's gospel above all the other books in the Bible um, that so many people over, over 2,000 years have fed their minds on um, and nourished their hearts with, um, and, and which they've placed their hope in, and, and, and they find rest for their souls. Um, so we're going to look at John. Um, a fair warning here. Uh, this message is going to be heavy on information, right? It's going to be more of a thinking than a feeling message. I, I, I've been accused of being more of a teacher than a preacher. That's the way I am. I, take it or leave it. There it goes. All right. So get your pens and paper out. I'm going to be checking your notes on the way out the door. Um, there's a teacher in me. But, I, but, but seriously, I, I want to challenge us all, those of you listening at home, um, 
and you're hearing this, and, you're, and, and you know, Jerry's going to give some information about Jesus, um, I, I would challenge you, both at home um, and here, if you haven't made that decision, um, seriously reconsider Jesus this morning as I present this information that John, the Apostle John, presents to us. Um, you have nothing to lose, and, and, and you have everything, everything in the world to gain. The first thing I want to note about the book of gospel of John, it's very different than the other three. And the other three are called the synoptics. That's two words kind of put together, sin, like synonym, similar words, um, and then optics, I. So, so the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, can be seen together as somewhat similar, but John is just, just different. His, his gospel is just so different than the other three. Um, the first notice difference that you'll notice is that John omits quite a bit of stuff that the other three generally include. Um, there's, there's no account of the birth of Jesus in the book of John. There's no account of his baptism. There's no account of his temptations. There's no Last Supper. There's no Garden of Gethsemane. And there's no ascension. Right? Well, how, can, how, can, how can the Gospel of John be anything accurate if you don't have those kind of things? Um, there's no healings of any people possessed by devils or evil spirits. I mean, he, he's got some healings of a blind man and and so forth, but, but, you know, no, no scary stuff. And there's no parables. I don't know if you recognize this. Check it out. I know you're like, nah, he's full of baloney. Dumb pastor. There's no parables. And there's really long speeches of Jesus, like really long. In the synoptics, Jesus usually speaks in these parables um, or in short, really unforgettable, vivid sentences that are, that are so memorable. Uh, those are in the, in the synoptics. But in the fourth gospel, um, John will present a, a, a miracle, and then this crazy long speech, almost an argumentative discourse, discussion, and, and kind of getting in your face kind of thing. And, and the pattern, again, that there will be a, a miracle or a sign, and, I, and I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit, followed by this chapter-long um, discussion. A third difference involves conflicting information. John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus differs from the other three. And there's some actual facts that unless you really, 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 well, they're just different. They almost conflict with the synoptics. Um, in the life and ministry of Jesus, in the synoptics, uh, Jesus' ministry begins after John the Baptist, his ministry. But in the book of John, the gospel of John, there's, there's a lot of overlap between the two. And, and again, I'm going to get to the reasons here in just a little bit. Um, in the synoptics, the location of most of Jesus's ministry is, is Galilee, you know, the kind of north of Judea, um, the backwater where Nazareth is. Um, but in John, it, it's almost all in Jerusalem and in Judea. And there's even different ministry duration. In the book of John, it's like three years, fairly clear that it's three years long. And, but if you kind of quickly read through the synoptics, it appears that it, it, it all takes place in one year. John kind of teases it out and, and shows us a little bit, a little bit more. And, and really, if you, you kind of really dig into the scholarship, John is probably right on most of this stuff. Weird, but that's the way it is. Um, and differing facts. Two of the most glaring, I'll just mention two here, the temple cleansing. In the synoptics, it's at the end of Jesus' ministry, but in the Gospel of John, it's right there at the very beginning because John has a reason for placing it there at the beginning. Um, the crucifixion, the day of the crucifixion in the synoptics, the three, um, it's the day of Passover, but John has it the day before the Passover. Um, 
And, and finally, while omitting a whole lot that the other synoptics include, John has a bunch of really, really unique information that the other three simply don't have. Um, the wedding at Cana, uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus, the Samaritan woman at the well, the raising of Lazarus, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, four long chapters on teachings of the Holy Spirit, 14, 15, 16, and 17. It's just not there in the other Gospels. Second thing, there's lots of intimate details, right, about the disciples. They, they, they take on flesh. They, they become not just stick figures, flannel figures on a flannel ga- gla- graph, you know, in Sunday school. They, 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 they take on some humanity um, in, John's, in John's gospel. Um, the miracles, the signs, detailed knowledge of Jerusalem, details surrounding a lot of the key events in the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, now, it's important to note as we're going to see that this wasn't a lack of information on John's part, right? He wasn't ignorant. He, wasn't, he, he was very, very old, but he wasn't forgetful, right? A lot of us, oh, he's old. He can't remember anything. Um, not actually the case. I mean, it actually had to do with more the reason that John wrote his gospel, um, even when the other three were available. He had reasons for the way he used his facts. Um, and the reason for writing will help us understand these omissions, additions, and so forth. Um, so by the time that John wrote, about different scholars, it would be about 85 to maybe 100 years after the death of Christ. Um, so John's a, a 90, nearly 100 years old. He, he's an old guy. Um, the others had written quite a bit earlier, 30-some, 30, 30 even 40 years earlier. Um, two major developments had, had happened in the church, between when those first three Gospels were written, and then John finally writes his, you know, way, way, way later. I'm going to just show you two of these, these, these two uh, developments. One was that Christianity was now more Greek than Jewish, right? There were far more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. Um, so John had to find a way to present his Gospel in a way that didn't force the reader to have to take a detour through Judaism, right? To take an example, if, if you were a Greek and you picked up the book of Matthew, um, the first thing that, would, that you would see is these, this crazy long genealogy, incredibly important to the Jewish people, hugely important, but to the Greeks, I kind of, whoa, what's the point of all this? Um, and then you'd run into the son of David, which is extremely nationalistic and somewhat militaristic. And like, who's King David? Like a thousand years before Christ, who is this person that y'all keep talking about? They wouldn't have a clue, not a clue. Um, and the Messiah, right, largely, and there's, there's some references, quite a bit of references to him in the Old Testament, but, but the vast majority that fed the ideas of the Jewish people by the time of Jesus was really from what we call the uh, Apocrypha, um, apocalyptic literature that was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, lots and lots lots of stuff, um, because that was at a time when they had come back from captivity and the, and the prophets had ceased to speak, and, and they were wondering, are, are we still God's people? Uh, is, he, is he around anymore? Do we, do we count? Does he still love us anymore? And so they, this pocket literature would um, really, really develop this idea that, that one day a Messiah would come and he would make Israel great again and they would crush all their enemies. And, and if you're a Greek person, you're like, well, yeah, this isn't something I want to jump into, right? They're going to come and the Jews are going to come and rule over us, right? So there, there's, a, there's, that, there's this issue. Um, so the Greeks... John's writing to largely a Greek audience. We're one of the world's greatest thinking nations probably ever. 
Um, and so the question becomes, must a Greek abandon all of their incredible intellectual history and, and traditions to, to think and, and, and understand Jesus as the Son of God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, in purely Jewish words and ideas and categories? Um, so John brilliantly capitalizes on, on, on two things, two ideas, Greek ideas really, um, that had parallels in the Jewish world. And, and as we look through these things, I'm going to constantly bring back chapter one of John to show you how John is dealing with these, the, these, these developments. Um, so the first idea that John jumps onto is the idea of the logos. To the, to the Greek mind, um, the logos meant two things, word and reason, right, thinking, and again, the Jews understood the Word of God, right? At the Word of God, with the Word of God, things happen. They, I mean, it's just amazing. So they understood the Word of God. And, but the Greeks also had that idea, the, the Word of God, not necessarily the way the Jews understood it, but they had that idea. Um, and they understood reason, right? They saw the universe, incredible order, incredible purpose, beauty, the heavenly bodies. I mean, the whole nine yards, like, Wow. Just, 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 just amazing. And so they would ask, what, what produced this order? And a Greek would, without hesitation, they would answer, well, it's the logos, right? It's the mind and, and the word of God that, that, that produces all these things. He's responsible. And again, you might ask the Greek audience, you know, what is it that gives man the power to think and reason and to know? And, and again, a Greek would, without hesitation, they would answer, it's the logos. It's, it's the mind of God. Dwelling within a man makes him a thinking, rational being. So John basically says this, hey, you've been looking for this mind of God? It's Jesus, right? It's this guy right here. Um, here's the way John actually says it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? This spoke to the Greek audience. And when we add verse 2, we find something else amazing about Jesus, an amazing truth about Jesus and we add, he was with God in the beginning. Um, this tells us that no one, two things, it, first thing it tells us is that no one can tell us what God is like, what God's will is for our life, you know, what is God's love and, and mind and, and, and heart, and, and what are they like? The, really, the only person that can tell us that is, is Jesus, according to this passage here. Um, it also meant, this is, this is kind of fun, it also meant that we, we know this, that God was always with Jesus. He was always like Jesus, right? There's an incredible coupling here in this passage. Sometimes we, we tend to think of God as like, right? There's the God of the Old Testament and there's the God of the New Testament, right? In the Old Testament, he's angry and he's ticked off at humanity all the time and he's always, you know, <laughs> crushing them. And then and all of a sudden in the New Testament, like Jesus got a hold of God and said, hey, stop it, right? Love these people. They're wonderful people. That's, that idea is so foreign to the New Testament writers, and it should be completely foreign for you too. Um, what Jesus did was, was to open a window in time, right, that we might see the eternal and unchanging, eternal and unchanging, like so there's not an angry God and then a, a loving God, eternal and unchanging nature, love of God. And the second Greek idea that John seizes on is this idea of two worlds. And we, we know this, the Jewish folks, um, there's the, this world and the, the world to come, kind of divided by the great day of the Lord, two worlds. And really, you could look at it as one world is not the real world, the world we're living in, but after the day of the Lord and we get into the age, of, the age to come, 
right? Every, all, everything will be peeled away and we'll know, right? So, so there's this idea in the Jewish world. Um, but to the Greeks, there, there were also two worlds. The world you see, which is a wonderful, wonderful world, right, in, in and of itself, um, but it was a world of shadows and, and copies and, and unrealities. This is Platonic thinking. Plato was one of their big guys for the Greeks. Um, the other was the real world in which all the great realities stand forever, as opposed to our earthly world that are poor, pale copies. Um, the seen world was unreality, and the unseen world was reality, right? And the great reality of all this, the supreme idea was that the pattern of all patterns and the form of all forms was God. God was reality. But the problem was, how do you get out of this unreal world into this real world? Again, John tells them that Jesus shows us the real world. This is John chapter 1 again, verse 9 and 10. The true light that gives light to the world, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. You see the way he's speaking into this idea. It was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So Jesus alone has reality in our world of shadows and imperfection. Jesus is the real light. And, and, and John uses this language, real. Again, he's speaking to the Greek audience. The real light, the real bread, the real vine, the real life. Right? To Jesus belongs the real judgment. Every action that Jesus took not only was it an act in time, but again, it was a window or, or a sign, right, which allows us to see into reality, right? For example, um, rather than relating healings and miracles to compassion and, and the sympathy of Jesus and, and his love and, and care for the suffering of the world, John relates it in a different manner. He relates it um, to the deeds, right, that, that demonstrate the glory of Christ, the, the signs that point to the reality of Jesus Christ. To John, it wasn't that there was no love or compassion in the miracles. That, that, that's not the point we're trying to make here. Um, but in every one of them, he saw the glory of the reality of God breaking into time and breaking into our human world, right? Real breaking into our world of crazy chaos and darkness. And we see this immediately after the first miracle, the first sign in John's gospel, the wedding at Cana. This is in verse 11 of chapter 2, kind of at the end of the wedding narrative. Um, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory. That kind of sums it up for us. Um, and his disciples believed in him. Again, there's so much to unpack here. A key theme in John's gospel is that in Jesus, um, heaven and earth have come back together. You know, after the fall had separated heaven and earth. Um, and we're going to more fully develop that in, in a future message in this, this series here. But talk about a sign, right? Listen to this first verse of chapter 2, the beginning of the wedding narrative. Um, it says this, verse 1, on the third day, y'all catch that. That wasn't just random. Y'all know what happened on the third day, right? It's not the band, the third day, right? Jesus arose from the dead on the third day, um, Easter Sunday for John simply becomes another sign um, that points to the glory of Jesus when, he, when he's raised to life. At the wedding feast, it's simply it's just a picture, another sign of the union of heaven and earth, right? When the wine runs out, Jesus turns the wine water into wine, right? We all know that. Um, and the servants bring it to the host, and the host is shocked. 
Not because the water had turned into wine, because if you read carefully, the host didn't even know this. He, he didn't see that action. He just saw this, this wine being brought to him as the host, and the, and the wine had run out, so the host was kind of paranoid. Um, here's what shocked the host, verses 9 and 10, chapter 2. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, look, everybody brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests are drunk, had too much to drink, right? They'll never notice the difference. Give them water and they won't even know. But you've saved the best till now. See, being with God is always, especially in the Old Testament, it's portrayed as this feast, right? As human beings, if we're really honest, some of the, the best moments in our lives is when we gather with friends and family around a big old table, and you got some fried chicken or some, some ribs or something just delicious, and, and, and you talk, and you, it, it's just rich. We Nazarenes are really good at that, right? I miss potlucks. Oh, my goodness, I miss them so much. Sidetrack there, sorry. And this, by the way, is a freebie. It's a twofer. This isn't the point of my message. I just had to throw this out. Um, in the New Testament, it's the wedding feast of the bridegroom and his bride, right? Jesus and the church. You guys. We, we, we guys. Girls. All of us. Ah, boy. Chuck on that one. Um, the use of the term signs rather than miracles also explains why John reports a sign pointing to Jesus breaking in from the reality of Jesus breaking into our unreal world and follows it up with this long speech, this long discussion. Um, you know, there's the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the blind man, the raising to life of Nazareth. They're all signs that point to the glory of Jesus, but, but they're not just the feeding of 5,000. Because right after that, John goes to great length in, in the words of Jesus and explains that Jesus is the bread of life. He's real food, real food. And the healing of the blind man wasn't just this one-time event. The healing of the blind man was simply a sign that Jesus is forever the light of the world. And raising to life of Nazareth, right, that Jesus is forever and for all people, the resurrection and the life. All these discussions follow the miracle, the sign pointing to Jesus. See, to Gion, again, it was never an isolated act. It was always a window into the reality of what Jesus was always doing, what he has always done, he always did and, and always does. One, not a one-time event. It was a sign that pointed to a Jesus that's worthy of our, our worship and worthy of our honor and worthy to place all of our hope and our, our trust in. So again, Jesus presented, John presents Jesus as the mind of God in a person come to earth and as a person who possesses reality instead of shadows and therefore is able to lead men out of the shadows into the real world of which the Greeks had always dreamed. So the first issue we've dealt with, right, that the fact that the world at that point when John writes was largely a Jewish world. Um, the second development that John deliberately addresses without really saying it, but he definitely addresses it, were, were heresies, um, false beliefs. Um, second development was really uh, the church had developed. It, it had grown, you know, 60, 70 years since Jesus had walked the earth, and, and, and the church had become an organization, become an, an institution, um, and theologies and creeds were being developed. They were thought through, and they were being written down, and, and inevitably, people would, heresies would, would arise. People would kind of go down the wrong path. They would come to the wrong conclusion based on all the evidence. And, and important to understand here, a heresy is, is simply, it's not simply an untruth. Um, 
I think a, a better idea is, is, um, is that it usually results when only one part of the truth is, is overly emphasized. And so John weaves a couple of corrections for these heresies into his narrative. This is, this is amazing. The first one, and again, everyone's going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. So hold on there, coaches. The first heresy is John the Baptist. <laughs> But not in the way you're thinking, okay? So, so the problem was a lot of Jewish Christians, the new um, Christians who were Jewish, they loved John the Baptist, right? Man, he was a prophet, and the Jews loved their prophets, right? He spoke like a prophet, he dressed like a prophet, he acted like a prophet, and right? They just loved the guy. And over and over again in the fourth gospel, quietly but definitely, John puts this idea to rest that, that John isn't the top, isn't the thing that we all strive for. Um, the Apostle John kind of puts John the Baptist. Now, if I keep confusing you, the Apostle John writes the book, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and okay, so forth. Um, so over again, over and over again, um, kind of puts John in his pop- proper place. And over and over again, John himself denies that he has ever claimed to possess the highest place and without qualification yields that place to Jesus. Um, Again, we've already seen that, that in John's gospel, the ministry of John the Baptist and, and Jesus, they overlap. In the synoptics, there's, there's uh, the ministry of John the Baptist and then the ministry of Jesus. But in, the, in, in John, there's a huge amount of overlap, huge amount of overlap. Um, and it appears to many theologians, scholars, so forth, um, that John may have used this arrangement to show Jesus and John in, these, in meetings um, so that that would give John an opportunity to explain, hey, I've never claimed to be the Messiah. I've never claimed to be the top dog. I've never claimed to be the boss. That all belongs to Jesus Christ. Um, again, from chapter 1 of John, this is verse 6 and 8 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. John the Baptist talking about himself. He came only to as a witness to the light. And again, in, in the 15th verse, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he comes after me who surpassed me because he was before me. And again, in verses 19 and 20, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites. These were the functionaries of the temple. They kind of ran the religion, right? They're different from the Pharisees who were really common, you and I, lay people who were just super concerned with following every every, every, every part of the law. So these are two different groups of people, the Pharisees and the, the scribes and the Levites. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And he did not fail to confess, but f- confess freely, I am not the Messiah. And when the priests, excuse me, when, when these priests and the Levites proceeded to grill John about, you know, who, who, who is he, he replies, um, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the ways for the Lord, right? Not for me, but for the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And this continues all the way through verse 34. I'm not, you're you're going to have to, this is kind of your homework, check it out. Um, the Pharisees show up quickly soon after the, the Levites and the, and the scribes, and, and they're grilling him again, right? And, and John the Baptist then, to the Pharisees, um, accords to Jesus a lot of the titles and the prophecies um, found in the Old Testament, in the writings um, between the two, testimony, two, the two testaments in that intertestimonial period that we spoke of earlier. Um, and again, it's easy to relegate this heresy to, to Jesus' time. Why, why do we worry about John the Baptist? 
Well, we've, we've got a song, right? It, it, it's the words of a song, I think, more of him, less of me. Right? This, this isn't a 2,000-year-ago problem. This is a problem even today. We as humans, we tend to elevate, for example, maybe the, the, the person that brought that saving knowledge of, of Christ to us, we, we kind of put that person up on a pedestal. Or, or maybe we even place ourselves on that pedestal, right? We just did something amazing, you know, and we're like, whoa, look at me, look at me. But John continues to say to us even to this day, less of me and more of him. Less of us and, and more of him. And the second heresy that the church was still fighting, even to this day, is this idea called Gnosticism. Many of you have heard of this. Let me kind of explain it just a little bit here. Essentially, the Gnostics believe that matter is essentially evil and spirit is... Oh, good. Works. Um, I'm probably sitting on it. Um, matter is evil. Spirit is good. Therefore, God himself cannot touch matter. And therefore did not create the world because the world is matter. Matter is evil. Spirit can't touch, right? Can't mix, can't put the two next to each other. And what he did was to the Gnostics, since God can't touch matter, um, he put out a, a series of emanations or beings kind of between himself and the final creation of earth. Right? And each of these emanations was further and further from him until at last there was the, the, this, the last emanation that creates the earth was, was so distant from God that he, the being did not even know God. In fact, hated God, was actively hostile towards God. Um, that emanation was the creator of the world, which is why John writes this in verses 2 and 3. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, right? We, we look at that, and, and we're, we're amazed, and it is amazing. But again, understand that John is speaking directly into a, uh, and, and this is still alive today, and I'm going to get to that in just a little bit. Additional ideas that this emanation was so far from God that it didn't know God actually hated God. Again, John writes this in chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, a Gnostic's brain would explode at this point. Impossible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so because the Gnostics had so mistakenly spiritualized God and demonized everything else, um, God could not have possibly, could not possibly have anything to do with the world. So John presents the Christian doctrine of a God who made the world and whose presence fills the world that he has made. Listen to this in, in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. To a Gnostic, whew, impossible. That's crazy talk. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, not from a whole bunch of emanations, not from a whole, you know, no, no, right? Full of grace and truth, the knowledge of God is Jesus Christ. Verse 14 also puts to rest some additional beliefs of the Gnostics. Some Gnostics believe that Jesus was one of those emanations which had proceeded from God. Therefore, in a certain sense, he, he wasn't divine in any sense of the word. Or that Jesus had no real body, right? A body is matter and God could not touch matter because God is spirit and matter is evil. Therefore, Jesus was kind of a phantom not really human. Um, there's this, a phrase in the Gnostic Gospels, um, 
In our Gospels, we have it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, and in the Gnostic Gospels, they change it to my power, my power, why have you forsaken me? And this, it's this idea that um, Jesus was only human, and God entered him at his baptism, and then at the crucifixion had to leave him, right, because he couldn't touch death, and, and so his divinity is gone. Jesus was only a man. And, and this is called docetism. This this idea that, that Jesus seemed like a man, but he or a god, but he's really a man, or he seemed. You know, that, that that was something that um, John spoke to. But taken all together, they believed that either John was not really divine, but simply one of a series of emanations from God, or that he was not really human, but a kind of a phantom in the shape of a man. And again, I'd commented earlier that Gnosticism is still alive and well in our world today. One way is that when we claim, and I'm going to be very very careful here. When we make the claim that all we are called to do, all we are called to do, I say this very carefully because we are called to do this, all we are called to do is pray and stay out of God's way because we as humans, we're bad, we're messed up, we don't have a clue, and, and just, just let God do everything, right? When you're down off your knees, don't ever get to your feet. Just, just stay on your knees. That, that's, that's not the picture that the Bible presents to us. Um, and the opposite also, all human strategies, tactics, and efforts in reaching the lost or growing their church is somehow wrong, right? Because it's our thinking somehow, and, our, and we're bad, we're, we're madder, we're evil. And so this idea is still very, very present in our world today, and you, and you run into this in both Christian and non-Christian circles, this, I, this idea of a separation between God and us. Um, he's good, and, and everything down here is horrible. The book of Genesis would argue with that right? Everything down here is good. In fact, we're really, really good. God so loved us. Again, together these ideas erode both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus Christ and really make him so much less worthy of our worship and our honor and really a questionable source for us to place our hope in. I want to close with a passage from the book of Revelation, also written by the Apostle John. In chapter 4, John is describing the throne of God. And there's 24 elders, and, and there's these, these cherubs, cherubs. Um, whenever you see in, in Hebrew an I am at the end, that's like an S. So there, there are seraphs and cherubs, and so cherubim, seraphim. Um, and the first, and, and he describes it, you know, 24 elders and, and these four cherubs. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Now, all those passages referring to the cherubim, they're angelic, angelic heavenly beings that are, right, who are really close to God and, and they're the guardians of his throne, uh, mainly from the book of Ezekiel. Check that out. Um, you'll see the same exact thing, a little bit different, but definitely pulling from this idea. Um, but the early church quickly added to the idea that, they, that, that these four beings um, also represented anything or anybody that proclaimed the goodness of God, that proclaimed His glory, which is really a way of protecting His glory by proclaiming it. And the, thus the gospel writers were soon symbolized in, in a lot of early churches and mosaic floors, um, symbolized as these four beings. Um, the most common designations, because it changed a little bit, there, there were some differences. The most common designation placed Matthew as the lion, 
right? He saw Jesus as um, the Messiah and the lion from the tribe of Judah. So, so the lion's always Matthew, usually. Um, Mark is the man, right? His, his gospel is very short, very plain, very direct, um, the most human, I guess, of all the, the gospels. The ox stands for Luke because it was an, an animal of service and sacrifice, right? He, he pulled your plow and you sacrificed him to your God. And that's a really a picture of Luke, right, who saw that Jesus Christ was the great servant of men and, and the universal sacrifice for all mankind. But the eagle stands for John because of all the living beings, it alone can look straight into the sun. This was just an ancient idea. I don't know if eagles can look straight into the sun, uh, but not have to look away, not, not be so dazzled that they, they have to hide their eyes. In the, in the Gospel of John, he looks directly into the reality and the truth that is Jesus Christ. So while the other three can be called biographical or physical, I guess, um, Gospels, many people call the, the, the Gospel of John the spiritual Gospel. Um, because in the book of John, again, we, we see behind the scenes you know, we don't just see the miracles and hope that they'll happen in our lives, but, but we see them as, as signs and, and, and demonstrations of the glory of Jesus Christ. So I want to conclude. I challenge you um, at the beginning of my message. If I didn't, I'll challenge you right now. A lot of information this morning. <laughs> Lots of information, and most of you are like, I don't even remember anything you said there, Pastor. Um, but I want to challenge us all. Maybe during this message, maybe you're sitting at home um, and you've been presented now with this incredible information that, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Um, and I want to challenge you again. Um, if the Holy Spirit has been on your heart and, and you're fighting it, stop it. Just stop it. Again, you have nothing to lose in the entire world to gain. If you bow your heads, let me close. Father, thank you so much for the, the gospel of John, for this apostle, that, this beloved apostle, um, that as, a, as, an, as an older man, an old man, um, had been being fed this information by, by your Holy Spirit, and, and near the end of his life, he wrote his gospel. Um, Proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that this Jesus character is the Son of God, is God himself, and has always been God, and will always be God. And so, Father, for anybody listening, it, it's a simple thing. It, it's, there's no magical words. You, there's a lot of different ways in the New Testament that this is described, but it, it's simply a matter of I've trusted myself for too long, and I've kind of made a mess of things, and I'm, I'm kind of lost I mean, I believe some pretty crazy things about Jesus, but, but this information is kind of changing everything. Um, and, and I desperately want to trust Jesus. This is the morning, this morning, I, I, Jesus, I, I invite you to be the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in my life. And I would just, just ask, Father, that you would make yourself, that you would make your son so real to anybody praying this prayer that they would, they would just, just conclude, I... I want to worship him, and I want to honor him, and I want to place my hope in him. It's a simple thing. Father, thank you for every person that's, that 
made this huge step this morning. And again, if you've made this step this morning, I, 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 pro- I guarantee you, you're going to have a lot of doubts. Satan is just going to hate on you. But the Spirit of God is stronger. Simply call on, on Jesus. Just call on his name. Your doubts evaporate. Again, Father, thank you so much for, for being with us here, for, for being the living word that we can trust. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.